can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, portion of text for us this morning, Matthew 22, where we find ourselves in verses 23 to 33, Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33, the same day Sadducees came to him, that is the Lord, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, the third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore... Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Father, we ask that you would equip our hearts and our minds to understand this incredible truth that's here before us this morning, the power of the resurrection. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, man has always entertained the idea of some kind of life after death. Uh, Some kind of afterlife, you might say. Uh, We see that in the history. If you look at history at different kinds of people, different kinds of cultures, inevitably they believed in a hereafter. And we also even see that today amongst us in our society. People often entertain such things thoughts of the hereafter when they're faced with death to some point in their life. Sometimes it's the death of someone else in their life, maybe a friend, a relative, a loved one. Sometimes it can even be the reality of our own death that we're pondering that somehow conjures up these thoughts about life in the realm of the hereafter. Even people who are you might say, limited in their spiritual exposure, think about such things. People who don't even believe in God think about such things. I was struck when I was reading some quotes from a couple articles in a book written about Steve Jobs, and, uh, who is the Apple's founder. And these quotes were concerning life and death. Now, here is a man who literally changed the way we live through his technological breakthroughs were just incredible, one after the other. Um, And yet I was struck when he was concerned with his own life, began to ponder death and the afterlife, Um, an individual who in the business world and in our world of technology is considered top in his field. But Mr. Jobs, after having a negative experience in a church at a rather young age, went searching for the meaning of life. And a new biography traces this quest for enlightenment and lifelong, led to a lifelong, what I guess they call an appreciation for Zen Buddhism. Now, He practiced this for maybe a year or two in his life, actually practiced it, but later on in his life he didn't practice it at all. But he obviously learned something from it. Here are some of the quotes I want you to read, I want to read to you from Steve Jobs concerning just the the aspect of the hereafter. And even this life. He says, For most of my life I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. 
being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me. Going to bed at night saying, we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. He also said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And he also said this, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life because almost everything, all external expectation, all pride, all fear, all embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. And the, one of the authors who interviewed him wrote this little bit. He said, I remember sitting in the back garden on a sunny day there in Palo Alto. On this day, he wasn't feeling that well. Cancer was taking over his body. And he talked about whether or not he believed in the afterlife. Isaacson tells this story. He said, sometimes I'm 50-50, this is job speaking, on whether there is a God. It's the great mystery we never quite know. But I like to believe there's an afterlife. I like to believe the accumulated wisdom doesn't just disappear when you die, but somehow it endures. And then this quote, just taken from his sister's writings at his funeral. It says, before embarking, he looked past, he looked at his sister Patty, then for a long time at his children. This is in the ICU before his death. Then at his life's partner, Lauren. And then over, his, over their shoulders, past them. Steve's final words were this. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You know, we don't know <laughs> Steve Jobs' final dwelling place. We don't know any man's final dwelling place. But he definitely was encountering something as he passed from this life to the next. We know that we can be assured of our own salvation when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we put our faith and trust in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that we can know where our destination is. But like the thief on the cross... Part of me wants to believe that somehow God graciously reached out to this man. But who knows? Life after death is spoken of in the scriptures. David wrote in Psalm 16, verses 9 to 10, Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely, for thou wilt not abandon me. My soul to shield, neither will you allow the Holy One to undergo decay. In another psalm, Psalm 49, verse 15, it says, God will redeem my soul from the power of shield, for he will receive me. Speaking of an afterlife. Even in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us. Us after two days, he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And perhaps probably the clearest teaching on the resurrection in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and to everlasting contempt. For the most part... You have to understand, to understand our text before us, Jews not only believed in life after death, but they believed in the resurrection of the body. 
with one exception. The Sadducees. Who in that way and other ways were just at odds with the rest of Judaism. With the rest of Jewish culture and theology. It was represented of it was representatives of that sect who asked Jesus this second question. Remember, he gave them three parables of judgment, and they were followed by three questions that were meant to entrap him so that all the people could see him fail. And the first group was the Pharisees, and we saw that last week. They came and they asked him the first question concerning taxes. And they thought for sure he was going to tell them not to pay their taxes. Or if they did, if he did say pay their taxes, then the Jews wouldn't like him either. So he was kind of between a rock and a hard place. But as the Lord always does, he used his wisdom and his infinite knowledge to just destroy them in front of everybody. And he basically asked for a coin and said, how do, you pay the coin? how do you pay the tax? It's a Daenerys. Well, whose likeness is on there? They said Caesar's. And he said the famous quote, well, therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. In other words, there's things in this life that don't belong to God. Taxes belong to the state. We live in a free country that provides us with various opportunities for growth and employment and and different things. And yeah, the economy is a little bad. But think of some countries that don't have those kind of situations. So there's something about paying taxes that Jesus said, you know what, it's owed the government. You need to pay it. But you don't worship them. You don't worship the government. You don't worship Caesar. Well, the second question is posed by this group, the Sadducees. Because it says the Pharisees left him and went away. When he answered them, they were just marveled by his answer. They couldn't believe it. And so we come to this second question in our text. And the Sadducees' goal was trying to discredit Christ. Once again, they had ill will. They had malice in their hearts. They didn't really want an answer to their question. They wanted to set Jesus up so that he could be embarrassed and and looked at as a failure in front of all these people. Now remember, it's still Wednesday. And as Jesus continued to teach in the temple after having driven out all these merchants the day before, sometime later on that day, after he basically silenced the Pharisees' disciples and sent them away, marveling, and their Herodian co-conspirators, Sadducees attempted once again to entrap him. Now, who were these people? Who were the Sadducees? I remember in college that uh, I always used to get all these groups mixed up. And so it's important to understand who you're talking about. The Sadducees were the smallest, but they were by far the wealthiest. They were the aristocrats, you might say, of that society. They were very influential influential in the Jewish sect. And remember, they were made up of the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, as well as the Sadducees. The, the, the Pharisees were the most numerous. There was more than, of them than anybody else. They were the most popular They were the most outwardly religious. They were the ones that wore the robes in public and put ashes on their head when they were fasting and all this stuff. And they held to the strong customs and practices and were legalistic to the core, believing that somehow their good works gained them some form of acceptance before God. For them, the rabbinical traditions became more authoritative than the Scriptures. So they took their traditions, much like the Catholic Church does today. They take their traditions and they raise that above Scripture. Some of the practices in the Catholic Church are not biblical, but they say, well, it's a tradition of the church. So you had the Pharisees. You also had the Zealots. Now remember, the Zealots were those who were politically motivated. They were like militaristic activists, almost terrorists. 
Remember, Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' disciples, was one of these guys. And they just, they went around and they created fires and they just attacked the Roman government at every, at every turn. That's what they were about. And they were resentful that Rome controlled government anyways. They, they controlled Israel. And then you had the Essenes who were just this kind of reclusive sect of, of Jews who spent much of their time down around the Dead Sea. And they would just translate scripture. That's all they did. They didn't want any attention. They just kind of spent their time copying portions of the Old Testament. Scribes. They were living in Qumran, who and they, we actually think that they were the ones who uh, translated the, um, came up with the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found were a thought of been copied by this, this group of people. But then you have the Sadducees. And like I said, they were the aristocrats of Judaism. They were in control of the temple. They operated the, uh, they were in control of the priesthood. And basically, it was through the temple itself, that's where they got their money. See, they were the ones that had all these, you know, uh, uh, things set up in the temple yard. And they were selling all these things. They were ripping the people off. All these concessions were going on. They were the money changers. And they, that's how they obtained their wealth. Well, the high priest and even the chief priests were most exclusively Sadducees because they were the most powerful because they controlled the purse. They were members of the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council. And despite their great power and their influence... And even partly because of it, the Sadducees were not respected amongst the other Jews. Whenever you got somebody that's got a lot of money and looks down on everybody else and looks to take advantage of other people, those people don't gain a lot of respect. We see that even in America today. They were kind of apart from the common people. They acted superior to them. But they were also disliked because of their theology. Because the one thing that set the Sadducees apart from the rest of Judaism was their teaching that there was no resurrection. And if you want to keep the Pharisees and the Sadducees straight, just remember, the Sadducees were just that, Sadducee. Because they didn't believe in no resurrection, they were sad. Politically, the the Sadducees were pro-Roman they were, they were pro-Rome. Why? Because Roman allowed them to operate their little Ponzi schemes all over the place. As long as Rome got their fair share, they didn't care. And so they were all pro-Rome. And they had control over the people. And Rome allowed them to do that. They were delegated some authority by Rome itself. Now, you stop and you think because of their power, because of their wealth, and because of all the uh, stuff that was going on in the temple, you would go to try to make your offering to God, and here were these money changers and these people offering uh, you know, lambs and all this stuff at a ripoff, saying, oh, your, your sacrifice isn't good enough, you've got to trade that in, and they would take it behind the curtain and bring it back out and say, okay, here's the, here's the one you need, you know, they'll charge them ten times for that. You, know, you don't do that too long before people start to dislike you. But they had the power. And because of their wealth and, and all that, basically after the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., the Sadducees just went away. They just disappeared because the entire priesthood ceased to exist. So there was no reason for them to be around. So politically, they were aligned with Rome. Religiously, they were, you might kind of put them in this category, extreme fundamentalists in their thinking. They interpreted Scripture with... Uh, a very harsh literalism. And they were very absolute. And uh, when, they, when they came to interpret the law, they were very just, you know, by the letter of the law, no grace at all. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were very liberal in their interpretation of the law. As a matter of fact, they made up their own laws. You know, the Bible said you shouldn't divorce, and the Pharisees came up with myriads of situations where you could divorce, just because it was easier to follow. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees simply did not get along. And they were, you know, really uh, honed in on the scriptures 
And they only trusted, basically, they spent a lot of time, you might say, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Anything else they thought, well, that's just commentary on that, because that's the law of Moses. So that is far above anything else. So they had this issue with the resurrection. The resurrection was scoffed at and denied by them. And the reason it was, you have to understand this culturally, is because Moses basically taught nothing directly about the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. And so the the Sadducees looked at the first five books and said, there's nothing in there about a resurrection, so we're just going to deny it. And they didn't believe in any hereafter at all. That's why they were so materialistic, because they thought, hey, let's get all the gusto now, because when you die, you just turn into dust and that's it, game over. I mean, isn't it nice to know that you have a life that you're looking forward to? That you're looking to spend time with God and glory? That one day when you don't wake up, you're going to wake up somewhere else and your body will be made whole and you will be in glory with your Savior? I don't know about you, but I look forward to those days. But a person who does not believe, does not have that kind of faith, there's little motivation in this life to live for anybody else other than yourself. So they were looked at as very selfish individuals. And after death, they expected no reward. They expected no brownie points, nothing. It was just the end. Now, in spite of many of the clear teachings in the Pentateuch about godly living, the Sadducees were totally okay with their own selfishness and their pride and their worldliness. They just had a disconnect there. And so you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were constantly at odds with each other. You can just kind of see the Pharisees were the common people, the Sadducees were not. And if you turn over to Acts chapter 23, Acts chapter 23, you see a little commentary on these two groups. Perceiving that one part, this is uh, uh, Paul there, were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension. Look at what happens between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. So here they, 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 they hauled Paul before him and he turns them on each other. For the Sadducees say what? There is no resurrection. They don't even believe in angels, any spirit, nothing. But the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. See, when challenged by the Sadducees to prove that there was a resurrection... Show us in the Pentateuch where it's at. They tried. The Pharisees really tried. As a matter of fact, they turned to a couple scriptures. They turned to Numbers chapter 18, verse 28. And they said, well, that shows us that there's a resurrection. And here's what it says. Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. And you say, well, how does that prove that there's a resurrection? Well, it's talking in the present tense. And it was indicating there that that Aaron was still alive, so there must have been a hereafter, because in the text, he's dead. Kind of weak. They even cited a more obscure text over in Deuteronomy 31, 16. The Pharisees did. They were trying to prove the resurrection to the Sadducees. They said, oh, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16, it says, Then this people will rise. If you continue and read the rest of the verse, the next word is, the words are this, and whore after foreign gods. But somehow they left that out. So that didn't really rise to the occasion of proving the resurrection through the books of Moses. The third text was in Deuteronomy 32, in which the Lord says, verse 39, 32, 39, it is I who put to death and give life. That doesn't really talk about the resurrection. That just talks about God's sovereign authority over life and death. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees constantly had this battle going on. 
in this theological realm of the resurrection. Socially, the Sadducees, as I said, were this higher, snobby kind of people. The Pharisees were the common of the common people. Politically, the Sadducees were pro-Rome. The Pharisees were anti-Rome. And you can go right down the list, one after the other. But there was one thing they did unite on. Guess what it was? They were against Jesus Christ. They both were against Christ. See, until the Lord really came into Jerusalem on that previous Monday, the Sadducees could care less about Christ. They could care less. But when he went in there on Tuesday, and what did he do? He cleaned their clocks in the temple, right? He went in and he cleaned out all their goodies, all their money-making schemes. All of a sudden, they began to realize, whoa, this guy's a threat to our income. We've got to do something about this. Well, let's join forces with the Pharisees. And that's exactly what they did. Jesus had invaded their own territory. He disrupted their operation. Right at the peak, when they were supposed to be making the most money during the Passover, Jesus came in and kicked them all out. The most lucrative time of the year. So any action against the Jews in general would necessarily threaten the Sadducees' own privileged position in the temple under the power of Rome. Matter of fact, in John chapter 11, verse 47, it says this, the chief priests and the Pharisees, a few days earlier, convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man, speaking of Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that no man should die for the people, and that the whole nation should not perish. And it says in John there, From that day on, they planned to kill Christ. And so even after Pentecost... The Sadducees continued their opposition. And they even, uh, history tells us, that they probably led in the um, uh, murder of James, the brother of our Lord. They were the ones that actually executed him. And so you can kind of see that they have this rift going on. But once again, you see them coming together to unite against Christ. Now, look at how they address him. In, in verse 23, it says, They came to him, those who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And they said this, Teacher. Right? Same thing. They're kind of flattering Christ. Like we said last week, Teacher is a, is a, a certain uh, place in society back then that were looked up to. They were respected. And so they're trying to get on his good side before they lower the boom. And he said, Teacher, and then they kind of bring in the bigwig, and they say, Moses said. <laughs> All right? Like, if anybody else has any credibility, it's definitely Moses. I mean, no higher appeal in their mind could be made than Moses. He was the great lawgiver. He was the supreme spokesman in the Old Testament. And so they knew that Jesus would have a high regard for this Scripture and that he would kind of look at this situation as a valid one. And so he taught, they ask him this question. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now this is found in Deuteronomy 25, and you can read that on your own, verses 5 and 6. Basically, it's a, it's a summary, you might say, of, of the... Uh, Provision that God allowed through Moses that when a woman was married to a man and she didn't have any children yet and the the husband died, it was the brother of the husband's responsibility to come and to take this lady as his wife and then give her children. That was the role. And remember, it was part of that was because they were trying to preserve the messianic line. There's no male child, then that would be disrupted. So that was just part of their understanding. In Genesis chapter 38, there's a situation where Onan resented the fact that uh, 
he had to do this, and, it, it, and he was unmarried, and he was supposed to go sleep with his brother's wife and perform his duty as a brother-in-law and marry her and give offspring to her. But he didn't do it, it says, and it says that he wasted his seed on the ground. In other words, he didn't perform, he didn't complete the, the uh, act of conception there. And that act was, it says, displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life. I mean, this is a very serious thing. And also in the story of Ruth and Boaz, you can read about it there, the Redeemer. It's the same basic understanding. So they come up with this story that's just ridiculous. And they probably manufactured this story. It wasn't a real story. It was just something they had probably perfected when they were encountering Pharisees and they were debating the idea of the resurrection. And they thought, let's come up with such a crazy story that the Pharisees would just walk away going, wow, that's a good question. I don't know. So here's their story. Look at what it says. It says there were seven brothers, and the first married and died. And having no children, he left his wife to his brother. And so the second and the third. In other words, these husbands kept dying. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was husband number seven, I'd be running for the hills. I mean, is this lady killing him? We don't know. We don't know what's going on. But for whatever reason, all of her husbands are dying one after the other. And the next one's stepping up to the plate, and then he dies, and it goes on and on and on like this. And so they say it happens all the way down to the seventh. And then after all them, the women died. The woman dies. And so here's the question. And they think they just got him. They, they, it's worked with the Pharisees probably before when they were encountering them about this discussion. They thought, hey, let's just throw it out there. And how's he going to answer this one? And look at what he says. It's, it's kind of an absurd question. But in verse 28, it says, in the resurrection, in other words, if you think there's really a resurrection, Jesus, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, you have to understand their belief of the resurrection was you came back the same way in which you left. That was basically their understanding. So you would have seven guys showing up and one woman. So what are you going to have, polygamy going on? We know that's against the law. Do you see the, the situation that arises here? I mean, it's a ridiculous story. But they think they have him. What's he going to say to this? And look at what he says in verse 29. I mean, this is so like Jesus. But Jesus answered them. You are wrong. (laughs) Remember last week we talked about Jesus is just, he doesn't beat around the bush. He goes right for the jugular. He says, you are wrong because you neither, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. See, the resurrection in their mind was denied. It was denied. And the Sadducees probably expected Jesus to say nothing or just walk away or just admit, you know, be humiliated, disgraced, whatever. Because that's probably what the Pharisees did before when they asked him this question. But Jesus, without even hesitation, says, you're, you're wrong. You're not thinking right. Um, he doesn't say maybe part of what you're saying is right. No, he says, you're, you're totally off base. Now think about it. There's people gathered around, and they're there to trap Jesus and mock him and make a spectacle out of him, and just the opposite is about to happen. Well, what are the two reasons here that Jesus cites? What is their problem with this this resurrection? What is their, their premise here? It's wrong. It says, first of all, you are wrong because you neither you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then he reverses it in his answer. So he addresses the power of God first in his answer. He reverses the order. And he says, in the resurrection, don't you know that they'll neither marry or given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven? They're not angels in heaven. It's not saying we turn into angels, okay? Some people worship angels thinking somehow we're supposed to do that. We're not. And we don't turn into angels. We're not going to have little wings when we get to heaven. Okay, that's not how it works. But he says, in the resurrection, this human relationship called marriage is done. Now, 
You might want to be careful how you respond to that <laughs> if you're married. <laughs> okay, if you're jumping for joy right now, we might need to talk. <laughs> and so he says, in the resurrection, you're not going to marry, nor are you given in marriage. In other words, this is a, a temporary, earthly relationship. It's ordained by God, it's beautiful, it's divinely ordained, but it's temporary. As long as you live, that's it. After that, you know, you're not going to be up in heaven with a wedding ring on. It's just not going to happen. Sexual relationships, reproduction, childbirth have no place in heaven, period. Because there's no death there, there's not going to be any new life born there as there is on earth. Nor will there be any exclusive relationships in heaven. Because everybody is going to be, stop and think about this, perfectly and intimately related, not only to one another, but related to God himself. So there's not going to be any little groups or, you know, any of that stuff going on in heaven. You're not going to have your favorite group over in the corner. It's not going to happen. In heaven, men will be, he says, like angels. What that means is we're equally spiritual in nature. We're deathless. We won't die. We're glorified equally. We're eternal equally. Luke reports in Luke 20, verse 36, an additional statement. It says this, that resurrected believers are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So it's important to understand that the resurrection exceeds our earthly relationships. I mean, you may love your spouse dearly, as most of us do, but it's not going to exist in heaven. You're going to be so caught up with the glory of God and the glory of God's people, it's not even going to matter. You're not even going to miss it. We'll have heavenly bodies as opposed to earthly bodies. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. And then he goes on, he says, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So God's limitless power is easily able to transform somehow this earthly body as we know it into a heavenly body. I mean, why should anyone deny the resurrection because of the, the foolish idea of it is God is restricted to raising up bodies in the same form in which they died. And so he basically says, you know what, you don't know anything about the power of God. You don't understand. God can do this. He perfectly is able to do this. Well, they also had an issue with it because of their ignorance of Scripture. And so he, he ties them in and he says, Regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Look at what he says. What was said to you by God himself? In other words, he's saying, You guys... You guys are just over the top with what God has to say in the first five books of the Bible. Have you not read what he said here? I mean, it's an amazing way in which Christ brings this back right out of the Pentateuch. They couldn't argue with where it came from. And he says... I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the living, or of the dead, but of the living. See, knowing that the, the Sadducees wouldn't be convinced with other texts, he couldn't point to the Psalms that we looked at, or to Daniel, because they would just say, oh, we don't believe in that. So he went right back to what they said is purely the Word of God, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and he pulled out, this scripture. And Jesus reminds them of a statement that was spoken by God. And it's recorded 
over and over numerous times in the book of Exodus. I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That the dead are raised. Even Moses shows us that. And so we see here that, that Jesus uses his, his wisdom, his infinite knowledge, to just blow them out of the water. Because what he's saying in that statement, it's very clear, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead, the Lord was still their God. Even as much as when they were alive. And so what does that prove? That proves that you don't just die. You don't just cease to exist. He's using their own text against them and saying, look, even Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God is still has a relation with, relationship with them that's a present relationship. How can he have a relationship with somebody that doesn't exist? If you're thinking as you die... And you don't exist anymore. And that's what they believed. I mean, an amazing way to go about this. Because in the original language, that's all the the present tense is used. Because God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And what he's saying is, he's presently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's what the text would bear out. So they would have a real hard time with that. All these died in faith without receiving promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having even confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. It's it's always better to Believe that something else exists beyond this present life. That's what Scripture teaches. And Jesus had accomplished here in one sentence what the wisest Pharisee could never do. They couldn't answer the Sadducees on this question. They probably were asked this question over and over again. And every time it was a gotcha question. And the Pharisees probably walked away from the Sadducees' argument with their tail between their legs. But not this time. Now, look at what their reaction is. It says in verse 33, And when the crowd heard it, what? They were astonished. You know, the the resurrection has four basic proofs. And I think they're in your outline there. God has spoken and revealed the resurrection in his word over and over and over again. God exists. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We just discussed that. It's the present tense. He's not the the God when they were alive, but he's even the God of them when they're dead because they live in the hereafter. And then the fourth point is God is not the, the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when you stop and you think about that, I mean, if we don't believe in the resurrection, beloved, let's just pack our bags and go home. Because what's the use? There's no, there's no reason to be here. If Christ hadn't risen from the dead on the third day, then there's no power there. If he can't raise himself, then he definitely can't raise us. If he can't raise us, he can't save us. It's all for naught. But when you study the resurrection in the New Testament, there's overwhelming proof about the resurrection of Christ. And that's not the purpose of this sermon this morning. But his answer causes astonishment. As much times the speak, when you speak about the resurrection, it causes astonishment. It causes wonderment. See, they were accustomed to Jesus. You know, they were probably, the crowds were probably sitting there going, well, let's see what he says this time. Because they already saw him kind of put the Pharisees and the, the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians, he, they saw Jesus put them in their place. And now here come the Sadducees. And you have all these common people around, and they're thinking, oh boy, I don't know what he's going to do. 
These guys really got it going on, man. They're the richest people. They're the high priest. They're the wealthy. They're the top. And Jesus just, just wipes them out. Totally humiliates them. In Luke twenty thirty nine, Luke reports that some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. And in that same chapter, Luke 20, verse 40, it says, But the Sadducees did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. In other words, they just went, wow, we're not going to do this again. We've just been majorly shown up. Humiliated. Now, tragically, Jesus didn't convince them because they would not be convinced. In the temple that day, Jesus again demonstrated his deity. He he demonstrated that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. He gave an answer to what seemed to be an unanswerable question that could only come from the omniscient mind of God. Christ also demonstrated his absolute commitment to Scripture. He didn't come out of the text. He didn't say, well, let me tell you a story and make up some story of his own. No, he used the text of Scripture that he knew that they would trust out of the first five books of the Bible, and he threw it right back at him. And he used that to combat the self-deceptive commitment of the Sadducees. As a young man, D.L. Moody was called upon one time, a great preacher, to preach at a funeral. And he didn't have anything ready because it was kind of the last minute. And the story says that he took his Bible and he began to kind of leaf through the, the Gospels, thinking, well, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus say? And the story says he, he looked and he looked and he looked. He just wanted to find one of Christ's comforting words at a a funeral. But he searched in vain. And what he found was that Christ broke up every funeral he ever attended. (laughs) Because he raised the person from the dead. Death could not exist where Christ was. When the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. That's just what happened. That's who he is. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, believe me, he means it. And I want you to kind of put all this in perspective in the way that we live our daily lives. I mean, if we're so willing to trust Christ for our salvation, and we're so willing to believe in a place called heaven, and we're so willing to believe that by his work on the cross of Calvary that he'll take us there one day, I trust that you can believe that he will meet your needs each and every day here in this life. So many times as Christians, we believe God for the the hereafter. We believe God for our salvation. But boy, when it comes to our checkbook or it comes to our marriage or it comes to our kids or it comes to our job, well, then we just kind of go, well, I got to work this out myself. I can't just trust God. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. God wants us to trust us not just for salvation, but for every little detail of our lives. Remember, he says, you know, you look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. You you know, I care for these. You don't think I'm going to care for you, one of my creation, one of you who've chosen to follow my son? He definitely will. I mean, we live in hard times. Just look around. Society is on edge. There's people rioting in the streets. You know what? They're all looking for something. They're just not looking in the right place. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you feel that emptiness that's in your life. Yeah, you try to push it aside. You try to push it off. But you know what? It's still there gnawing at you day and night. I'm here to tell you that until you bow your heart, your life to this Jesus that this text speaks about, the one who is able to save your soul, 
from a place of damnation called hell. Total, utter separation for eternity. No one should want to go there. It's not a good place. And you don't have to. God allows you the opportunity to come to Him. To bring your cares, your concern, your burden, your sins to the cross. Give control to Him. That's what He desires. Father, we asked this morning that as we looked at this story, we saw how these Sadducees tried to trick and really embarrass our Lord. And yet, once again, He proves to be faithful. He proves to be the God that He is. He proves to be the all-wise, all-knowing, infinite Creator. And Lord, I'm sure that they left humiliated from the temple as they walked out, thinking, boy, this didn't turn out the way we thought it would. And yet you can't help but look at the hardness of their hearts, even after the truth was standing before them. They turned their back on him. And their hearts grew harder and harder till they cried for his execution. They murdered the very one that came to give them life. Life hereafter, life eternal. I pray this morning for those of us gathered here that we would know for sure that we cried out to God for mercy. We cried out to God for forgiveness through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That our eternal fate is secured by Christ and Christ alone. It's not left up to us to work out the details or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or try to figure it out. No, God has provided a full provision for our salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You just need to cry out. You need to ask God to forgive you. Ask Him for His mercy. Ask Him to help you understand that He is the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father except through Him. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. That's what God desires you to do. And for us believers, I pray that we'd be bold with the the gospel that you've entrusted to us. Lord, that we wouldn't rely on our own wisdom, but we would rely on the infinite wisdom of you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would believe that as people even encounter this next weekend at our prophecy conference, the truth of the Word of God, Lord, that you would bring conviction upon their hearts, that they would fall before a holy God desiring the salvation that you offer. And as the people of God, I pray that we would do our due diligence to get the word out, trusting you for the results. Father, we thank you this morning for our time in your word. We pray that you would encourage us with it. Give us a good, safe day. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.